Hey everybody, before we get started with a brand spanking new episode of the Novelization Realization Project, just wanted to thank everyone who's kept us subscribed on their podcast feed. I've been gone for quite a while now, but uh, we'll be back posting regular episodes. Really excited about that. Just wanted to give a quick listener note. It turns out if you leave a lyrics tab from Metro Lyrics open for about 40 minutes or so, randomly, a video will start playing with audio in it. It only lasts a couple of seconds before I realized what was happening. I didn't really interrupt the conversation, but it does kind of just appear about the 20-minute mark or so. It goes away really quick, but I wanted to apologize for that. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Novelization Realization Project, one of the only shows in cyberspace that purports to look at movie novelizations and the films that inspire them. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, and today we're going to be looking back at the 1986 Willard Hyuk, sure, why not, film Howard the Duck. Joining me in this exploration of the cinematic literary is film connoisseur and film editor, Pete Metashevsky. Pete, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, I think it's actually uh, what, what Willard Yuck, Willard Yuck, 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 Yuck. <laughs> Based on the content of the book, I believe everything about him is satirical at, in yeah, a certain level. The duck puns, that's, that's probably what his uh, name is. I, I started writing down, we'll, we'll get into this in a second, but I started writing down all of the duck puns I found in the margins of my notes. I have like about four or five pages of notes just on the book. I ran out of space. Yeah, because... I think I started writing them down when I when I originally read it, and then after a while, I just stopped. There were <laughs> there were too they were too numerous to number. Which is weird because in the movie, at the very beginning, when they're setting up the duck world, there's there's there is some disturbing imagery, but and there are some there are some allusions to these duck puns. But you know, you're you're taking it all in in this kind of just bizarre opening sequence, and then it's over. Like maybe they'll say like your goose is cooked or something. I'm, I don't even know if that uh-huh. comes up in the movie, but. Yeah, that seems to be like a Willard yuck 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 uh, trademark there. Yes. So, Pete, getting into this, let's let's get it started properly. When was the first time you saw Howard the Duck? You know, I remember seeing the movie jacket at uh, video stores back when there was such a thing uh, at a pretty young age, and I do remember um, asking my mother if we could rent it because you know. Once I was old enough to read, it was like, oh, Howard the Duck and uh, George Lucas and what is this movie and how come I've never heard of this and can we get this? And my mom, mother would always just, you know, dismiss it and say, no, we, we don't need to see that. No. That was kind of my dad's reaction too. Like he was just like, no, you don't. my dad was weird in that there were certain movies that were just like, no, that's dumb. We're just not, yeah. you're just not watching that. Yeah. We don't need to see that. I mean, <laughs> trust me. I mean. You'd think that a parent would eventually just relent and say, okay, fine. You, you want to see it? Fine. It's kind of like eating Baker's chocolate for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, no, you don't want that. It's not going to taste good. But it's chocolate. I want it. Come on. And, you know, every kid's got to learn that lesson. So or the, the harsh mistress with, or the but, harsh mistress that is vanilla extract. Yeah, but, oh. but again, the thing is the movie is so incredibly bad that uh, I – imagine that she just didn't want to sit through 90 minutes of it uh, even one more time. Um, So anyway, uh, eventually she relented and we wound up watching it. And um, 
I don't think my mother was even in the room. I think that she was just upstairs reading or something. And, um, <laughs> doing her taxes or something more enjoyable. Right, uh, doing something uh, <laughs> uh, far more productive and worthwhile. Um, so right off the bat, it was very weird. And I was wondering what the hell was going on in this movie. I don't know how old I was. I might have been about, God, I want to say maybe 11 maybe 11 or 12. So before you uh, were perhaps a critical film viewer. Right. And and you could and, still know at that time kind of a piece of garbage. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it might have been the uh, – it's pretty early on in the movie. I think the inclusion of duck tits is really <laughs> – Oh, uh, the disturbing – the disturbing kind of reality that duck boobs are now in my life. And, right. uh, and Although what, what is more disturbing? Duck boobs – or tits, but depending on uh, your nomenclature, uh-huh. or just a, the idea of an entire world of dead-eyed duck people. Yeah, dead-eyed duck people. Uh, oh God. Um, the 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 fact that within four minutes it's set up that the protagonist is about to sit down to masturbate. Yeah, I don't remember <laughs> that happening in the book. Um, no, it like but, uh, it, it's much more of a world-weary uh, kind of feel to it, where it's like, oh, I got home from my crappy job. I just want to relax, yeah. smoke a cigar, watch he some duck-based pun movie. School. He, yeah, uh, he's he's actually lived a little bit. He's yeah. not just some stogie smoking degenerate. Um, yeah, so you know, uh, the movie was just. I guess when it was over that first time. You know, we watched the whole thing. I'm surprised we got through it because it really <laughs> is terrible. As a child, uh, you 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 give a movie a pass, I feel like. Right. I mean, there were only so many movies that I couldn't watch all the way through. I remember as a child, I think it took maybe two or three tries to actually get through Popeye oh, the oh, first time oh, and uh, yeah. maybe Pete's Dragon. Uh, okay. But uh, – and a lot of people love that movie. I'm, I'm sure it's great, but I'm having trouble <laughs> sitting through it. I just thought it was really boring. Um, but uh, <laughs> so, yeah, and it ended. And I guess I finally understood why my mother didn't want us renting it. And <laughs> You had like a newfound respect <laughs> for right. her critical and opinion. So maybe it was just the fact that it was a bad movie and maybe it had something to do with this weird kind of – uh, psychosexual relationship between the duck and Leah Thompson. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, we, we can get well, to well, that later. Well, uh, first, I just want to set up, so I was not familiar with Willard Huck's uh, filmography such as it is, uh, so I did a little research. Are you familiar with anything else that he's done? I don't think so, no. Uh, well, I guess he was a writer for a couple of Lucasfilm projects. He was uh, one of the writers of American Graffiti and was in fact nominated for an Oscar uh, with that. One of the writers on Temple of Doom, which is another one of the movies that my dad would just never let us watch. He was just like, that's a bad Indiana Jones movie. You don't want to watch that one. Um, and uh, But he also directed a couple other films. Before this, I guess the best known one is, the. have you ever heard of the movie Best Defense? Best Defense? I don't think so. No. Starring Dudley Moore and Eddie Murphy. I have wow. never heard of this <laughs> film, but I'm kind of compelled to see it, although it has like a three-star rating on IMDb. Uh, also, French Postcards which just sounds like an erotica film and Messiah of evil round out his uh, filmography. Messiah of evil. Wow. Yes. That sounds like an MST three K uh, movie. If I've ever, yeah. uh, ever seen one. So yeah, the antitha Jesus. So uh, did you rewatch the film for uh, this uh, episode, Pete? 
You know, I tried to find a copy of it. I could not find one. I didn't get around to seeing it. I did look up a few scenes that were on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, Lucasfilm or 20th Century Fox or whoever happens to own this piece of crap movie uh, are surprisingly <laughs> defensive of it. They, uh, you know, there are some movies that you can find even on YouTube. Like, wow, I'm I'm surprised I was able to find that. Yeah, yeah you can watch the entire super. In. You can Who watch really the entire Super Mario Brothers movie. Yeah, exa exactly. Like, what money is being made by oh, protecting sure. the rights to Howard? I guess maybe it's. And that was a better movie than Howard the Duck. I mean, but that's like, you know, that's like saying like arsenic is better than cyanide, like it tastes better. Like yeah. at, the, at a certain point, I don't want either in my life. Um, so I watched it uh, about six months ago uh, in kind of preparation. Like I knew we were going to do uh, this episode yeah. of the Novelization Realization Project. And I was kind of watching it with an eye because I had never seen it before. Uh, so really? yeah, again, like I just respected my father's wishes for 30 years, uh, and decided, <laughs> <laughs> decided to never bring it into my life. Uh, but, uh, ended, ended up watching it and I was with my eye of looking for something redeeming because it's renowned to be a bomb and a bad movie and kind of like this weird evidence of like Lucas hubris of bringing this property that no one like, I don't want to say no one like, cause some people like the comics, but this sure. very much a fringe character onto the big screen and in an unlikable way to fans of the comic book. Uh, right. I found one thing that I could kind of latch on to and get me through, especially the second half of the film. We can get into that in a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, I completely agree with you. Most of it is just disturbing. And I mean, the beginning is very disturbing. And then it's just it's so bipolar in terms of where the movie goes. It starts out like it's this, you know, uh, classic fish out of water tale where he's using it. And they're using that to kind of yeah. maybe make some critiques of modern society because duck world's uh -huh. basically just like regular world, except with duck tits and stuff. So, <laughs> you know, it goes into there and then it goes switches a total 180 uh, after they try and send Howard home the first time with the introduction of these evil overlords and, uh, and, and then and then that whole dynamic comes in. So it, it goes from just a very weird fish out of water story to this weird sci fi uh, adventure. I, I mean, I guess it's not really science fiction, but uh, just the, the, the so tonally weird and uncharismatic by just about everyone in the film that uh, there wasn't much uh, in terms of the book. It's written by Ellis Weiner or Weiner. I'm not yes. sure. Uh, are you familiar with any of or did you do any research on uh, uh, Mr. Weiner's work? Uh, before this episode. I am, no, I am not I'm not familiar with Ellis Weiner's work. The name does sound familiar. Um well, you were he, talking about the tone of the movie though, the tone of the movie and the book and I actually looked into some of the comic books mm -hmm. and um I have not actually read any of them, but the tone from how people describe it, the tone of them seemed to be you know, they're obviously absurdist and the idea of this uh, interdimensional, interplanetary, whatever it is, this duck from another world um, coming to Earth. It's just kind of an excuse to be this big satire of modern times and just sort of poking fun at everyday situations. And it is just utterly ridiculous. And I can honestly, <laughs> I can honestly say uh, that I understand why people found it appealing and why the idea of a movie version would be you know, a pretty fun concept. I, uh, I, I would have agreed. Um, yeah. I understand that. <laughs> well, you know, maybe as an animated they, film, I could, I mean, I could definitely see it. Yeah, exactly. I mm -hmm. mean, as an animated cartoon, um, or stop motion or something, it could have worked. I mean, maybe if they had even scrapped the idea, put it on the shelf and then waited 20 years, 
maybe they could have done something with it today, but it's sort of that thing of like, you know what, you you can't make Terminator 2 with claymation. It's not really going to work. It won't have the same effect. And that's really the the biggest problem with the movie is, you know, aside from the terrible script and terrible acting and all that stuff, it was very much limited by uh, the central character, the problems with the, you know, the duck suit. And it's like, it's, come on, it's a little person in a duck suit, his mouth it barely He's, moves at all. Yeah, His eyes have no expression whatsoever. Yeah. So let's make him our protagonist of our film. That sounds right. like a plan. Yeah. Well, do you know no, why it was? Do you know why it was live action? All right. <laughs> do Do you know why it was live action? What's that? Do you know why they made it a live action film? Uh, I believe it had something to do with Lucas. That uh, Lucas really thought that they could do it live action, and uh, he was very interested <laughs> in uh, inserting special effects into it. By that I, time in his career, he was very, very much into progressing special effects and seeing how far they could push it. And you well, know. I, I had seen that there was a uh, there was speculation that he had committed to deliver a live action. A movie in 86 with whatever distribution deal that he had with Lucasfilm and so he was originally wow. going to either make uh, Howard the Duck partially animated or, or do something where it wouldn't be a live action duck and so be- but because they he contractually could not get out of it they had to figure out a way to make it work so, uh, so kind it, of depressing well, it could have been just like a spite project it, it, it might have been but I, I feel like <laughs> everything I've read about Lucas talking about this film is trying to defend it Although you could argue the same way about you could argue the same thing with episode one, but whatever. It's like, come on, George, but give it up. Anyway, to no. go back to go back to Ellis Weiner real quick. Sure. He's uh, for the only novelization that he's ever written, but noted humorist. He was the editor for Spy and National Lampoon, and he wrote Yiddish with Dick and Jane, and National <laughs> Lampoon's Dune D O O N. Okay, well, and so it, and it kind of comes across in the writing. I mean, am, did. With a, okay, I read this through twice uh, because I wanted to refresh right before we recorded, and I read it, reread it sure. over the past couple of days. The first time I read it, I had not watched the movie, so kind of uh, the ridiculousness of the story I'm, in my notes, I'm very hostile toward the book <laughs> in that it doesn't make any sense, and like there are basic like inconsistencies with how the uh, how the world kind of interacts with itself. And in rereading it after watching it, I th- I kind of enjoyed it a lot. The, the, you know, the, the actual I, uh, story elements are garbage, but what he does with it is interesting to me. Well, see, I would have been interested. To, I would have thought that had you not seen the movie before, you, you might have enjoyed the book more. Because, um, again, the movie is so terrible, but the book is actually kind of enjoyable. I had the benefit of seeing how god-awful the movie was, but... If it had been the other way around and the movie was an adaptation of this book, mm-hmm. somebody had you know handed it to me and say, hey, we're thinking of making a movie version of this. And I would have read it and thought, well, this is pretty insane. Um, <laughs> it's not quite as clever as it's trying to be, but yeah, yeah. Uh, we can improve on that. But again, it's like the book is a huge improvement over the movie. It's much more enjoyable. Again, there is still a very strange very uncomfortable almost erotic scene between uh the the singer girl whatever her name is the cherry bomb lead singer beverly switzer yes switzer um (laughs) it is just as uncomfortable in the book as it is in the movie (laughs) honestly they Uh, try to push it in the book they try and push it even more uh like explicitly like they're about to do it yeah 
And uh-huh. in, in the in the movie, I think they play it a little bit more of not that you can tell she's joking right away, but it's a little more tongue in cheek, I guess. Yeah, almost as if she kind of relents and says, you know, oh, okay, maybe he's just not that into it. I'm just going to play it off like I was kidding. Mm. Uh, so you could look into it that way in the movie, but, I suppose, from what I remember. I but, don't think I've seen it like if all the way through since I first saw it as a kid. He, he also gets a feather boner, which is really great uh, for a children's movie. Oh, on the uh, top of his head. Yeah, yeah, his, his, his duck feather boner. Um, but one thing I want to say about right, the writing right. the writing style of the novelization is that, I don't think we mentioned this, there are so many little asides where for pages on end, like something will happen like, Howard gets dumped into the garbage can. And then there will literally be an excerpt that like exegesis on the the, yes. the differences between easy chairs in Earth and Duck World. And it's actually like this yes. it, this entertaining ADD kind of moment of, uh, of world building and kind of getting you to know the character uh, of Howard. And, and, and it, it actually does a, a better job of building his character. It does. Building Howard's character, the world that he comes from. Also, uh, they do a little insert uh, about the uh, uh, the company what is it the like the astrophysicist oh, yeah. uh, or... Dynatech or Astrodyne yeah. or something like that yeah somewhere I, I believe it's based in Shaker Heights um... yes <laughs> which that that was like the only concession to reality uh, or, or, or to actual Cleveland events I don't want to be like Cleveland guy like oh my god they got it wrong in the movie because of uh-huh. course they shot it in Culver City or whatever you know so sure. I, I, I'm not being that guy but that was the one concession to like oh we'll look up one thing about Cleveland <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so, yeah, but they, they do go off in these weird inserts, and they are actually pretty entertaining. Um, I don't remember if it's uh, – because in the beginning of the book, there's like – there's a narrator, but there's also this all-knowing voice of God or something. Like a, like a, a Carl Sagan voiceover. This, is, a, this right. is one of the weird motifs the book keeps coming back to. All of these uh, – like I don't know if he just watched a bunch of Carl Sagan – uh, documentaries on PBS or something like that, but they keep coming back to like in the swirling cosmos of the universe, the all-knowing Adam swirls with omniscient power or something, you know. And yeah. but there are multiple characters who reference like Carl Sagan voiceovers. Yeah, there's this there's this weird like argument between the narrator and this voice of God, and and it, it's a really weird tone to start off your book. And I honestly had to reread it. I think like when the first like couple pages a couple times just to make sure I was like. Oh, oh, it's not just going right into the action. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and they have that a little bit in the movie, but it just played nowhere near as fun. Uh, It's just more it's it's a little bit. It's pretty much straight up. There's no there's no playfulness about it. And that's what makes the book a lot of fun is it doesn't take itself too seriously. It kind of realizes that the story is shit. And mm-hmm. and it, it just has fun. Like at one point at near the end of the book, it just start like it talks about how they find the ultralight airplane in a hangar and they go, they go, why would it be? Or one of the characters goes, why would this be here? And Howard goes, I don't know. And then like, literally the narration goes, a lot of things that happen to Howard the Duck don't make a lot of sense in the real world or something like that. So <laughs> right. it, it, it very clearly kind of knows that it's peddling schlock but it has a really fun time doing it so i give full plaudits to for polishing a turd to mr wiener oh yeah no it's uh it's a much more entertaining read it's it's much more introspective it gives details about who howard is what he's thinking and feeling as you can do and have the freedom to do in a book Mm -hmm. that you can't often do in a movie or just you know movies like howard the duck don't bother doing um 
you know, in the movie where he might uh, storm off away from Leah Thompson in a huff and they get separated in the first, whatever, the first part of the movie, probably the first half hour somewhere. Um, he goes off and he, what happens? He gets a job yeah, he, oh. at like a, like a, a, a sex spa or something. Well, it's like a bathhouse or. That is almost the, and, and, yeah, I guess we should probably give a basic, if you've never seen Howard the Duck, one, don't. Uh, two, the <laughs> the basic story kind of goes. We'll run it up. Howard it's the Duck is great. in Duck. Yeah, How, <laughs> Howard the Duck is in Duck World. We see duck tits for no reason, and it's actually called Duck World. Yes, that, it's, <laughs> it's like not called Duckanasia or anything. It's it's duck just world. Duck World. Stuck, you know, we live in human world, right? That's what we right. live in. Yeah, humanity world. Um, so he's in Duck uh, World. He sits in his chair. The chair shoots off through space. He lands in Cleveland. <laughs> Uh, he gets attacked by weird bikers, uh, somehow gets tossed into an alley, falls asleep in a garbage can. Leah Thompson is in a rock band called Cherry Bomb, which if we're going to talk about the most generic name for your rock band, Cherry Bomb is right up there. Like you should just, I, I can't even think of something more like, um, uh, grape explosive. There we go. Uh, like it, it's a total punt when it comes to trying to make your band sound edgy. But anyway, she's playing an unsuccessful, they're run by a sleazy manager, uh, who's trying to exploit them for money or sex or whatever. Uh, she's getting attacked by some weirdos as she's exiting the club. Howard kicks their butts somehow, even though he's like a 30-pound duck. They set up multiple times that he is not strong uh-huh. or has any kind of real military training. Uh, they bond. They go back to uh, her apartment. Blah, blah. Like, they, there is a... They somehow... It, oh, she takes him to go see Phil Blumbert, who is played by Tim Robbins, which I said yes, is... Tim Robbins. This is his big fat liar moment where it's like a good actor in a just a total shit role like that he wants to forget about. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's uh I don't know how many other movies he had done prior to this, but it, it um, has to be near I, the beginning. I, right, it has to be. This is probably one of his first movies, if not his first movie. And I'm surprised um, he got other roles after was, this cuz he's terrible. Yeah, I, wasn't wasn't he in The Groundlings or Second City or, you know, one of the you know, one of those improv troops. I think that's how he knows um, Jack Black and Kyle Gass and people okay. like that, because um, they all started out in the same comedy troupe. So he was definitely an up and coming comedy actor, I would imagine, before uh, before who was it? Susan Sarandon met him, and then yes. things started to get a little serious. Oh yes, um, and steamy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh-huh. to get to get back to to the Howard the Duck story, so Tim Robbins plays someone posing as, or at least to Leah Thompson posing as a scientist, is actually a janitor in a natural history museum. He's trying to make turn this into his big break to somehow become like a big researcher or something with discovering this weird duck creature. Howard is insulted. He runs away. For some reason, he decides to go try and get a job, even though up until this point, his only concern has been trying to get back home. I don't know why. This is the probably the worst part of the movie. Uh, for me, <laughs> he goes to an unemployment agency, then goes and gets a job at us like a, a sex spa. I don't I didn't know those existed that an unemployment unemployment agency yeah. would give you that job. Uh, and I then as I recall, the woman at the unemployment agency, or at least in the book, she's just really irritated by him. She thinks he's like, you know, mooching off of Uncle Sam or something. You know, here's this duck. He's a real smart ass. Well, it's, it's not it's not that he's a duck. Thing. It's that he's a weirdo, right? Oh, he's so weird. Yeah. He's wearing this weird costume, even though he's three foot two. <laughs> we don't get it. Th- that is Why the most frustrating part of the movie. A duck costume is some brilliant plan to <laughs> somehow 
you know, get free money. I, I don't yeah. know. Listen, it was the 80s. People were doing a lot of coke. They're voting for Ronald Reagan, as we saw in the movie Hobgoblins. So yes. it it was a weird time. But that's one of the weird things about this movie that they don't know how to treat Howard being reacted to by ordinary people because some people are just like, man, look at this oh. crazy kid. Look at that weird costume. And then other people are like, holy shit, a doc. Yeah. Yeah. It is very strange. It's a little bit like it It might have made more sense if they had just, if it wasn't so inconsistent, if they just decided how people were going to react and stick with it, kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, kind of like Coneheads. Yeah. Where, you know, yeah. you have these people with big heads and, you know, people are a little taken aback at times, but at the same time, they're like, oh, okay, you know, here's this weird guy. <laughs> oh, just happens to have a big head. All right, whatever. So long- you know, uh, the Conehead's daughter, she's like the most popular girl in school. You know, I mean, <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, really hot. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. So after Howard goes, becomes a hobo after losing his job at the sex spa for like half a day, <laughs> meets back up with Leah Thompson. They have an awkward almost sex scene where uh, Leah Thompson is doing her best Sigourney Weaver and Alien uh, and wearing like a super scanty outfit around Howard for no reason. Uh, rummages, oh, yeah. th- rummages through his wallet uh, and finds a used condom, which is very weird. Uh, he kept a used condom in his wallet. Yeah, listen, I mean, maybe he wanted to clone himself. He never knew when he's going to need some material. I oh, It doesn't God. make any sense to me, but that's the logic the movie is setting up. Uh, anyway, then Blumbert comes back and they discover that there's some Ray in some secret government installation that can send him back home. They go back there. There is an accident. Jeffrey Jones somehow appears in the movie and brings down a demonic deity from space. Yes, I'm saying these words because this is what happened in the goddamn movie. Uh, yeah, they turned on the uh, the ray, right? And he yes. got zapped with it or something. He and got zapped got with it, and he's like in now the, or possessed by the evil overlord monster or something. Yes, and then there's this whole big shenanigans where they're running away from the cops because they think they blew up the lab. They're taking Jeffrey Jones with them for some reason. Uh, <laughs> he he kidnaps Leah Thompson to go back to bring back more evil overlords from space. Howard and uh, Tim Robbins have to go after him. They fly in an ultralight plane, so there's some added uh, variety of visuals in the movie for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, there's and, a lot of chase sequences, a lot of driving sequences, as I remember. Uh, yeah. And then they end up killing the monster, and Jeffrey Jones is okay. Yeah, there was something like, I think that the monster was trying to uh, bring down more monsters or something. He was going to yes. use Leah Thompson to... Uh, well, And that's <laughs> that's know. the most uh, fun in the book is when they're talking about where these evil overlords live. They're stuck in like this weird nexus of Solaria or something like that. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and they were talking about how it's like basically like the uh, extraterrestrial suburbs where they're totally bored up there and they can't have any fun. And they're basically like a bunch of spoiled teenagers. <laughs> And it, it, it makes it so much more fun seeing the character that's uh, the the uh, the Dr. Jennings character as played by Jeffrey Jones kind of wrestling with kind of being just a bratty, super powerful demonic deity. Uh-huh. That, and whereas Jeffrey Jones is the only reason to watch this movie. If there's a supercut of every Jeffrey Jones scene in this movie, that's the only redeeming quality about it, because I, I, I could watch him chew scenery all day in this movie because he talks with this ridiculous oh, yeah. voice. He's sweaty and they put gross 80s makeup on him. And right. he, he just does not care. Dark under eye circles <laughs> and crazy hair. And uh, yeah, he looks and like he, he has not like this. his mother's basement in a long, long time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'd say the, the other, the other redeeming feature, maybe not a redeeming feature, but uh, one of the other things that stands out uh, for me about the movie was 
at the very end when the evil overlord shows up, it is this big stop motion creature. Um, and I should really watch it again, but I remember it looking pretty impressive. You know, it's kind of ridiculous and insane, but it's, it's totally nuts. And the stop motion was actually really cool. I remember the stop motion being uh, very well done. Yeah, there aren't a lot of special effects in this movie, probably bookended at the uh, beginning and end. But the what when they are there, they're kind of like those great 80s Ghostbusters special effects yeah. Yeah. where it, it it's very visceral and, and grimy and gross, but really cool at the same time. Like they have those same energy right. effects that they use for uh, the um, what are the gun backpacks that they have in Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's like the, the kind of uh, what was it? I'm going to bring up Coneheads again, but at mm-hmm. the towards the end of that movie when he faces off against the big stop motion creature the uh the Garthok, i think that's what it's called yes um it was kind of like that you know it's uh i mean when was this movie produced 80 it was in what? production probably pro- beginning or at the end of 84 through 85 and released in summer of 86 okay so around that time so even for a movie that came out in 86 i mean that that was pretty impressive i mean that looked like go motion it looks like um you know the nightmare before christmas um yeah I, I I, very much in that vein. well and and the style of it actually reminded me of like the actual style of the monster actually reminded me a little bit of men in black where it's just this kind of very grotesque uh thing it, it right. doesn't have the slickness <clears throat> of of that kind of style it has much more of the kind of stop motion uh, roughness to it but very much in that vein right it's kind of this it's a combination of like a Kind of a scorpion, sand crab, uh, lots of teeth and claws. I mean, it is actually quite impressive when you think about how many different things there were to move around on this little model. You know, how many different snapping things and pinching things. And it's, I mean, it's a really articulate. So uh, my hat's off to them for that. I mean, they obviously spent a lot of time trying to make that look cool. You have to watch Uh, a lot of shit to get there. But yes. it's not worth it to do so. But if no. you happen to see it on HBO or something, <laughs> just wait till the end. Watch the last fifteen. Watch the last twenty minutes. See a little vintage Jeffrey Jones, uh, mm-hmm. and and then watch some cool stop motion. Basically, is the recommendation I think we have for the movie. Uh, I mean, I would really really like to get into the comic books now and see um, where they went with that. I don't know how many issues were produced uh, or published. Um, Maybe they're still even making them. I don't know. I don't keep keep up with comics or anything. But, Especially uh, obscure Howard the Duck. Yeah, it's like if you. I mean, it seems like God. When did Ninja Turtles first come out? Uh, eighty nine. I mean, the movie or the well, like the uh, the cartoon and the because I know the comic books were sometime in the early to mid eighties because there mm. were 19- and those were super dark. Really dark, really weird, really twisted, but it seems like uh, the 80s were a time for that kind of absurdist kind of uh, action stuff. You know, you'd... You want to unsettle your kids, basically, is what they yeah, <laughs> want to do. Yeah, you basically want to... Uh, I mean, if you watch the original Ninja Turtles movie... Yeah, Raphael like a, is, like, is fucked up. He is, re- <laughs> he is dealing with some like, shit. It is like a crazy kids comic book, but for adults. It's like <laughs> taking this concept and making it 
for adults. It's like there's some truly dark shit that happens when, in that movie. When there's they get to the farmhouse and Raphael is just in a bathtub and Donna or and uh, Leonardo is just sad for like two scenes. <laughs> I'm like, as a child, I'm like, what am I? Why? Where's Casey Jones beating someone with the hockey stick? Yeah, it's, and uh, Splinter is being held captive, and he's like, you know. Who knows what they're doing to him? They've yeah. got him. They, they basically have him like crucified up against uh, a so, wall and they're waterboarding him or I don't know what they're doing to him. But Shredder threatens him with. Oh, God, it's so it's I'm seeing brutal. I'm seeing the cartoon 87 to 96 was the initial run. And I think the movie came out either 90 or maybe early 90s. Yeah. So you'd think after a movie like Howard the Duck came out, maybe somebody would have been a little bit discouraged, like, maybe we shouldn't be going in this anthropomorphized animal motif. Well, but, but what they should have done is do a, a Howard the Duck cartoon show and grease, you know, because they had, uh, I just looked it up, they had, uh, the Ninja Turtles movie came out in 1990. So they had, three, yes. you know, two years to kind of get kids buying the, the toys. In, line, yeah, right. exactly. Whereas Howard the Duck just Howard comes Duck out of nowhere. definitely kind of an underground comic, uh, one of, uh, it was Marvel, right? One of Marvel's lesser known titles. Uh, I, I'm not going to, state an opinion on that because I'm almost certain I'm wrong okay well if it wasn't Marvel it might have been Vertigo or something like yeah that. I think it was one of the indies so I the only one I'm that's coming to my mind is image and I know that's wrong so um but kind of going into uh, talking about disturbing stuff in this movie is there and, and and in the book is there a character in the mid 80s who was subjected to more attempted sexual assault than Leah Thompson you know uh because she's almost raped in Back to the Future. <laughs> At the very yeah. beginning of this film, she's almost raped. Her and manager, her manager wants to sexually like wants to trade sex for favors. Uh, uh, and then later on, uh, Jeffrey Jones, as evil possessed man, says he wants to use her body and has her strapped down like on a on like a Frankenstein table to yes. like I mean, metaphorically inject another being into her, which mm-hmm. I, I think is like at least metaphysical rape. Um, right. And then you you look at Back to the Future 2, basically her entire relationship with Biff is one long history of sexual abuse. Uh, So, I mean, really a disturbed uh, uh, kind of typecasting for Leah Thompson. Yeah, yeah. uh, (laughs) Well, Howard the Duck came out after Back to the Future, so maybe they figured, yeah, uh, we need someone to get scantily clad with Mm -hmm. a duck. And then get kidnapped and strapped to a table and be pseudo raped in sci-fi world. So yeah, it sounds like Leah Thompson. Um, also, kind of know, kind of discovered uh, that Leah Thompson not all that great at carrying a movie. No, especially with a duck that can't really express emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately not. I mean, she has had her moments. She was one of those hit or miss actresses. Unfortunately, it's it's mostly miss. But um, she can work well in ensemble. You know, oh, and, yeah. that's, and that's why she shines in Back to the Future. Yeah, she's got it. She definitely has her moments. That's for sure. I mean, I thought that she was one of the most endearing characters in that movie, um, mm-hmm. especially as the older mom character. I mean, you know, uh, there's there's an old adage. I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's uh, comedy. When you're doing a humorous situation, you know, you can have somebody acting a fool but the real laugh often comes from someone reacting to it. Yeah. And uh, her reaction in those scenes with, uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Her 
her reactions are fantastic, and she plays a wonderful middle-aged alcoholic mother. <laughs> discontent. It's a it's a compliment any woman would love to hear. Uh, the one thing that is great about her in this movie is her hair. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, I was shocked. Uh, remembering it, it being pretty radical. Yeah, it's teased to such a level that I never thought human hair could be. In terms of, though, her character in the book, I don't think she comes... I mean, she's put in a damsel in distress situation, for mm-hmm. sure, by being captured by Jeffrey Jones. But she does have a, a little bit of a little bit more agency, I feel like, in the book, because she's she's actually really motivated about the success of her band. She's kind of driving for Uh them to get better gigs. She actually escapes a couple times from Jeffrey Jones. She's, uh, you know, she takes over control of the car. So, I mean, she's not this passive character. Not that she is in the movie, but I feel the character is is at least given a little bit of a fairer shake in the book. Right. Well, again, in the book, they they do a little more introspection into the the character's thoughts and feelings and emotions Mm -hmm. and what they're going through and... And uh, she is a little more independent. She's a little more headstrong in the book. She's not Princess Leia by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, you know, again, it's like Howard gets the money that their dipshit uh, manager <laughs> owes them. And, you know, I think, yeah, space rabies is is how he... Uh, yeah. Oh, God. How he's able to convince space rabies. Well, and, um, and the other thing is, if you're trying to convince some... Like, if you land in a world where you're surrounded by uh, uh, ant, like people that you would think are animals, right? Hairless apes, they, he refers... Right. To, in the book, at least, he refers to pe- humans as, right? Don't you think you would want to act in a way that wouldn't be consistent with an animal? Uh, because Howard bites people on numerous occasions, often on the butt, which is really weird. Um, which uh-huh. seems to be like an animalistic behavior. I don't know. Like, I, I if I was stuck in an alien world and I was wanted to go to the alien unemployment office, and I was getting mad at the woman there because she was giving me shit, I wouldn't then bite her on the ass. I, I don't yeah. understand the motivation to that. Well, there's a lot about Howard that remains unexplained. Uh, but, but in the book, we learn that he's a product of basically a lost generation stuck between. Uh, you know, kind of the hippie generation and post Duck World War II. Yes, it's referred to as Duck World War II, <laughs> and and you know, kind of the the get it all, grab it '80s generation. And he's kind of a lost soul. He was a uh, folk singer and a construction worker. Uh, his parents forced him into pre med, and uh, he kind of dropped out after a year and had some uh, some unsuccessful relationships. So he's really uh, a tortured poet, uh, at least according to the book. Yes. No, he's he is much more interesting in the book. He's a little more relatable in in the movie. You could accredit it to him being this really bad puppet, very unexpressive. (laughs) But it's not just that they don't really go into his character that much. He's just this duck from Duck World who, you know, surly and angry for no reason. I mean, other than being stranded on Alien World, I guess that would make you mad. But uh, but he's so yeah, it just grumpy all the time and then he also has these weird flashbacks quite often in the film which i found really weird especially like because i guess they're using it as a substitute for any kind of cutaways to his prior history or anything like that where like he, he experiences a couple times where he thinks he's like the chair is coming back to life or uh, yes. just like weird things that are happening to him just very very weird sequences um, and I wanted to get to like kind of the one of the other absurd moments in the book when they escape from Anodyne or whatever the military industrial complex is called. They yeah. somehow drive away to a diner, and in the yes. <laughs> it, in in the 
in the uh, movie, it's it is called like a Cajun sushi place, like that's on the sign. But they never kind of go into that. They're it's just like a diner, and there's this waitress that Howard's mean to for no reason. Uh, but in the yeah. in and then uh, Jeffrey Jones goes psycho and like starts murdering people. They try to kill Howard because yes. he throws a pie in a guy's face. So you're gonna kill a sentient being because he throws a pie in your face. Of course, it's Cleveland. Of course, um, but. Yeah the in the book it actually goes into like this very absurd sequence where it's it's a diner full of trucker gourmets and so when they spy howard it's not be, they don't want to kill him because he threw a pie in a guy's face they want they're like getting into arguments about how what's the best way to cook them and they go into like like the uh, uh wiener goes into all of these great asides about how they're going to cook them with shiitake mushrooms and well should you go you know asian fusion with them and it it it's so bizarre i i i can't help but love it you almost feel like he might have been adapting this from an earlier version of the script. Like somebody tried to throw this clever, bizarre scene in there and uh, the movie executive or whoever was in charge at the time might have just said, you know what, let's just have him throw a pie at somebody and we'll get into a fight and, you know, it's – it's easier to process. We don't need to do anything this absurd. Yeah, we we don't Uh, need people talking. We have to pay them more then. Yeah, but you know, kudos to Wiener for trying to make things a little more interesting, a little more entertaining. My theory uh, is that he, because I've talked to uh, 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 Alan Dean Foster, who does a lot of novelizations, and he said it kind of varies how much latitude you have with um, like what kind of contracts you sign when you have, when you go in to do a novelization about how much script access you get and what how sure. much you have to stick to it. And I think that I don't know if Lucasfilm wasn't familiar with it, or maybe because they weren't planning on turning this into a franchise necessarily that they really didn't care so much about backstory. And I think they pro like my, my conspiracy theory is that they just laid out a very loose outline and said, fill it, make it 250 pages, get it out by August, you know, get it to the publisher by this date so we can get it on shelves. Sure. Cause this is going to be a big hit. And he said, I'm not going <laughs> to like, uh, Ellis Weiner was like, I'm not going to just turn out some shit. I'm going to have some fun. And the, like the fun is really evident in the book. Yes. You know what is not yeah, fun? actually put some thought into it. What's not fun are the surplus of duck puns. Uh, I have my list here. Do you have any written down, Pete? Um, you know what? I first read this about, I don't know how long ago was it, like almost a year ago. Yeah. And um, so the list is probably missing. But I do remember, I did skim okay. a little bit before we, uh, uh, before we were going to start this. And I don't know how many of them are in the movie. I'm sure there's a fair amount of like, you know, duck themed products and magazines when we see Duck World and stuff like that. But um, honestly, I don't remember. I remember there was, uh, let's see, a reference to Charles Duckins. Yes. Uh, God, what a. Uh, oh, okay. <sighs> First of all, the one that I find the worst, the absolute worst, is they're talking about the continent of Dafrica. <laughs> yes screw, screw you <laughs> I, I hate that with every uh, fiber of my being which also I, it's uh, a reference to Daffy Duck I'm assuming right yeah waiting w-a-d-i-n-g uh, yeah. for Godot which again uh, within, within the logic of the world like that's what these puns piss me off about is within the logic of the world I don't because we don't like refer to human acts and, and insert those as words I know they're just being silly but there's no uh-huh. consistency to it that because sometimes they're they're uh, like uh, James Pond. Yes. Oh, oh, OK. That's not really we're talking about ducks. You're talking about geography then. Like, uh, could you then uh-huh. incorporate a sky pun because ducks fly? 
then you know because ducks are in ponds but they also fly couldn't you by then by extension yeah another confusing aspect of it is the fact that this is what i've always been confused by um as soon as i started getting into this which was why is is howard from another planet or another dimension it seems like he's from another planet but with all these it's it just seems like he's on a planet that's exactly like earth except the dominant beings on those on this world are ducks if you were to say that this is just an alternate dimension where this kind of thing this is just the way it is okay i could buy that but why is it that there's this whole other planet of ducks and you know it's light years away from earth but for some reason they have things like daffrica and charles <laughs> duckins and all this stuff hatcher I, it, in the rye really, hatcher yeah. in the rye hatcher in the rye yes. hatcher not a word unless you're referring to uh terry right before it um L- lazy bird i'll give you that one that one's not clever lazy bird, yeah it was the name of his chair right it, it's yeah it's not clever but at least that makes sense instead of a boy a bird i get that um quack and decker or ducker quack and ducker <laughs> again i i hate it i hate it so much mallard fillmore how, how not is, bad how big is the list by the way like did you number how many of them you there were uh for? no i i have the marginalia of my notes uh consumed by them um <laughs> there has to be at least 20 on here um saint Pauli gull a gull's not a goddamn duck no okay no. you now you're just so entering the much. whole realm of aquatic birds into yeah. you know are, is there gonna be a pelican based pun somewhere yeah everything they, is bird themed just uh, birds and then our thing is, the other thing is about the duck world about his home planet or universe or whatever the hell it is mm-hmm. is i believe they mentioned in the book that uh howard can't swim and oh, yes. that for some reason the ducks on this planet have evolved to the point where they don't really swim for some reason uh well the the one concession that they make in the book to that and i actually thought it was kind of clever is they they, they talk or they talk about how why howard can't fly and the author kind of as a snarky aside goes, well, that'd be like expecting like a human to go swinging amongst the branches of the trees. I mean, just because you, that's what your ancestors did doesn't mean uh, that that's yes. what you're doing. So I was like, it's weak sauce, but I appreciate that you at least acknowledge that it's ridiculous. Sure. Um, and then finally, let me just see if I can uh, come up with another one that just infuriates me. Bird Reynolds. You're just lazy. Oh, yes. I remember that one. Bird <laughs> Reynolds. <laughs> the United Bird Drakes Reynolds. of America. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, that one's worse. That has to be worse. <laughs> that is worse than than whatever the uh, Africa. What the hell was it? Daffrica. Daffrica. Daffrica? That doesn't even make sense. But yeah. you know, oh god, United um, Drakes. That is pathetic. <laughs> and then uh, finally, let's go out on a high note here. We already mentioned Mallard Filmer, which is one of my favorites, actually. Uh, but the Fountain Hen again. Chickens yeah. are not ducks. I mean, unless yeah. a hen is technically a technical term for a female duck, I'm not up on my duck nomenclature. I apologize to any duck scientists or duck aficionados out there if I have offended you, uh, but I'm just not up on on that. Aren't, so, uh, aren't, aren't female ducks just ducks? Aren't aren't uh, male ducks drakes? Uh, I cannot speak to that. I, I refuse to take a position on duck nomenclature. Okay. Um, and then yeah. so just a couple kind of weird observations. Um, I love the the one thing that I love in the book is and it's in the movie, but it's not played as well, is the 80s trope of the sleazy club owner slash manager. Like, I, I feel uh-huh. like you just don't see that in movies anymore where 
like because the whole dynamics of the movie, uh, music industry have changed, you don't have this weird relationship between, or at least as adversarial a relationship between management and bands. Yeah. And I, I just love the idea of like sleazy guy in a limo and he's taking advantage of this band. Right. It's great. Mm-hmm. Except no, it's played you, you horribly. That, uh, you don't see that quite as often. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is still definitely a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just don't see it as often in movies. It does really exist in the musical world. It is It is hard to be a musician. I'm at not least, saying it's not. Uh, at least to get paid to be a musician, to tour. And I was actually just listening to Get in the Van, uh, Henry Rollins' journal entries about his time in the 80s touring with Black Flag. And... Um, yeah, no, the uh, the whole dynamic of like uh, the musical, the the manager, but also the club owner. I mean, there are a lot of things that happened back in the day that don't really happen as often nowadays, and it is kind of sh- kind of a shame that we don't see that as often in movies anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, as far as the uh, the club owner giving uh, wh- who is it, the cherry bombs, giving them shit, trying to rip them off, and yeah. And- uh, yeah. Trying to take that advantage of sexually. Yes, yes, that too. And that was definitely more of a thing back in the 80s. I'm sure it probably still happens today, but uh, hopefully not quite as frequently. So one of the only other highlights of the film, of course, is the classic song at the very end, Howard yes. the Duck. Uh, uh-huh. Do you know who wrote that song? I do not. Thomas Dolby and George Clinton combining forces... <laughs> To create oh. a terrible, terrible movie song. I have the lyrics here. I just want if you if you've never seen it, one that's definitely available on YouTube because I may have listened to it yes, a dozen it times. Uh, but uh, okay, here we go. You ain't got the class, boy. You ain't in his league. So don't try to tell me that you've got the things that I need, huh? This guy's <laughs> original. He's got the juice. The saying the same thing. Well, hey, look out, world. The duck is on the loose, right? Quacks nine times. It, it, it gets better from there. It's actually a very long song. <laughs> there, are, uh, there are like four verses on here, and um, it, you get to hear the singing voice of Leah Thompson, which is surprisingly adequate. Yeah, the music is terrible, and the song is, is just stupid, but Howard, uh, no, she, she had some pipes on her. But uh, again, that's, that's one of the saving graces of the book. You are spared this absolutely god-awful song. Well, and at the very end, uh, there is a... Instead of him coming out and singing the song, like somehow getting roped into that, he's somehow electrocuted by a microphone and then thrown yeah. out on stage and then people cheer for him. There's one mm-hmm. scene in the movie where they go, this is our song for our new manager. And the crowd goes wild. I, yeah. I, I don't I don't know why. <laughs> it's like why somebody, you know, uh, why anybody would be impressed with this this strange little duck creature slash manager. It's like good for um, you. I don't know. It's like uh is he famous now? I, I mean, have he, they toured before? Is he now like a celebrity? Because does everybody now know that he saved the world from the evil overlords or what? Well, at least within the reality of the film, no, that's why they had to create the song, Howard the Duck, to tell people yeah. that he saved the world. Um, but otherwise, I don't like if, if, he, if he is famous and he decides to become the manager of Cherry Bomb, I feel that's not giving uh, Leah Thompson or uh, Beverly Swiltzer a fair shake <laughs> because then she's only the side piece to, you know, uh-huh. a world saving sentient duck. So if you really yeah, cared again. about her, 
he would let her have okay. her own career. He, he doesn't belong out on that stage. I mean, Howard really needs to, even though it was an accident. Yeah, fine. Oh, but, convenient. Oh, he, you know, he's the manager now. He needs to stay backstage, let the girls do their thing. You know, it's she's she's a fairly independent woman. This uh, this Beverly character, but. Uh, you know what? She needs to toughen up a little bit. And I'm going to say, Mandrew doesn't need to be at every single goddamn show. Okay. No, he doesn't. You know, you can, yeah. ju- one, represent other people. Okay. Diversify your clientele. Okay. Otherwise, you're taking way too big of a cut from one band. Okay. Yeah. Second of all, you need to be booking other venues. I want, I need to see riders. I need to see veggie platters at every single show. Okay. Oh, that's a busy job. Yeah. He shouldn't be running the lights. That's the lighting crew's job. Uh huh. And uh, who, a Tim Robbins character has uh, decided to basically Forsake forget about his dream in astrophysics or whatever it was he was pursuing, his internship in, in astrology or whatever he was pursuing, and just basically become a road a roadie tech guy. Again, though, the book band. the book redeems that because it says, "Oh, he's only doing it for this one show. He hasn't given up on all of his hopes and dreams." Whereas in the movie, it's just like, "I'm an indentured servitude now. I have no idea why." <laughs> See again, it's it's Mr. Weiner trying to salvage all the things that this movie fucked up that make absolutely no sense. <laughs> so I guess uh, would you uh, in in the final analysis, would you yes. recommend that someone uh, seek out the novelization for Howard the Duck? I would definitely recommend someone seek out the novelization. I would say uh, for a number of reasons, if you've never seen the movie. Definitely seek out the novelization so then you can see the movie and I would be interested to know what you think after watching it. Um, And if you have seen the movie already, uh, definitely seek it out Um, because I think that it was actually a much more enjoyable experience, I think. It's, you know, I believe that the author worked pretty well with what he was given. He made it a lot more amusing and it's still a stupid story. Oh, yeah. But – it's it was it was a fairly entertaining read. Yeah, um, it, it it maybe doesn't elevate the material, but it has so mm-hmm. much fun playing within its bounds that it's yes. it's it's worth reading. Yes, definitely. All right, so, well, yeah. Pete, thank you so much uh, for sitting in on kind of this revival episode of the novelization realization project. Uh, many more episodes to come. We're probably going to be trying to do a monthly. Uh, uh, release schedule Uh, but uh, yeah thanks uh, for sitting in really appreciate it yeah no problem if there are any more uh, movies as terrible as Howard the Duck that have novelizations of them then I would be more than willing to give them a read Uh, well I'm I'm not saying the movie is terrible but there is a novelization for Lady Hawk and I kind of can't wait to read it (laughs) (laughs) that was a pretty good movie I I, I, that's probably my favorite Matthew Broderick uh, performance I'm not gonna lie yeah, and Rudger Howard not mm-hmm. playing some kind of psychopath. Uh, well, I, he definitely has dependency issues, guy. but... Oh, and sure. finally, I, w- I will leave the audience on this note. If you've seen the movie Howard the Duck, uh, you know that the voice is kind of grating after a while uh, with, with Howard. I don't know the name of the voice actor, but I found out that the uh, the two people they also considered, along with whoever actually got the job, John Cusack, and I have it written down here, of course, because I needed to reference it, Martin Short. Martin Short. Can you imagine Jiminy Glick's voice <laughs> with Howard oh, the Duck? Oh, oh, oh. oh that, that's great. Oh, so good, so good. So, uh, check out the uh, website. That, 
real quick, you know who I would have chosen? Who would you got? Michael Keaton. Oh, yes. Oh, he like vintage 80s Keaton? Mm. Totally. Even Keaton now. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, that I, I think I, uh, who was it? Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, whoever did the James Gunn. There was a scene at the end of that movie. Oh, where, yes, with, with Howard the Duck, yes. Yeah, Howard the Duck makes an appearance. He's like one of the characters, one of the aliens locked up in prison or something. Um, and I think that they actually, uh, Seth Green, they got Seth Green to voice it, mm-hmm. which was a terrible choice. Anytime <laughs> Seth Green does a voice, it always just sounds like Seth Green doing a voice. He always sounds like some 17-year-old kid like trying to sound old. But, uh, <laughs> you know, seriously, anybody out there, you got an idea to make another Howard the Duck movie, use Michael Keaton. It's like, normally I don't give a shit about whether or not somebody's career is on fire right now, but... He's definitely made a huge comeback, and he would be a great Howard the Duck. And so, he does have ex- he does have experience playing a bird man. Good night, folks. That's it for the show. Oh, I set that all up. Uh, NovelizationRealization.tumblr.com is the website. Subscribe in iTunes. Uh, check us out on Facebook. Sure, why not? Noveliz- Facebook.com slash NovelizationRealization. Thanks again, Pete. And until next time, no problem. keep Thanks reading. No problem. Take it easy, guys. Bye now. Read a damn book. You kids. The Novelization Realization Project is part of the Stolen Dress Podcast Network. What does that mean? That means you can visit StolenDress.com to check out other great Stolen Dress podcasts, blogs, tweets, videos, and books. If you're looking for a cool new podcast to check out, I recommend the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. It's a lot like the Novelization Realization Project, except instead of novelizations, it's comedy on vinyl. And instead of random people that I know, they have like actual comedians. It's pretty cool. Check it out.